we're in our series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And knowing that he has turned this kingdom, this world upside down, his kingdom is totally different. And it is an upside down kingdom because he turns the hearts of men right side up and causes us to want to live differently and gives us an example to follow a template. And I've been thinking of this uh, this past week as I was meditating on this verse, and I was reminded of this past Monday. Uh, this weather that we have is psychotic right now. It's it's like so frigidly Antarctic cold, and then it's warm, and then it's cold, and it's going to snow again. This is just psycho Chicago weather. And when it snowed the other day, and it was a holiday, it was President's Day, I decided to take my kids out uh, sledding. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken your kids sledding before, but I was really looking forward to torturing, I mean, having fun with my children as we, we did the sled together. We get on the sled, and, and one of my children had never done this before, so it was really fun showing them how to do it. And it's not like it's that hard. I mean, you just sit on it and go, and just go down the hill and let gravity take its place. But there are little things to learn. And I mean, I love being a father. You get to show these cool things to your kids. Like, um, I, I got to sh- show my daughter how to shoot a jump shot and show her the importance of fundamentals and how to play the game. She kept asking why I just want to play. I'm like, you have to understand this before you really get the game. And, and there's other things I enjoy showing my kids, like how to crack an egg, just how to make eggs, how to eat uh, McDonald's french fries without putting the ketchup on the fries. You know, I learned to do this when I was younger. I just take the ketchup packet, squirt it in my mouth, and then I take the fries and eat it. I like to pass these things on to my kids. It grosses my wife out, and I love it. So much fun. You know? I do that also with toothpaste. I don't like the middleman. I just shove it in my mouth, and then I start brushing. Right? Don't knock it till you try it. Okay? It just saves, just saves time. I don't like the, the extra moment. I'm kind of save time. Um, but I, I do want to show my kids some fun things about what I do and, and fun things that I've enjoyed and, um, and pass on traditions, and some are fun and silly like that, and others are, are a lot more serious. Uh, to show our children how to trust, uh, to how to how to seek God, how how to live our life, to show that we're different. I mean, my kids are getting to the age now where they see that there's a difference between them and their friends and their families. Uh, the other day, when my daughters was sharing something, she said, uh, uh, "Daddy, you know, they were sitting around the cafeteria table and they kept asking. They were comparing on who had the most boots and the most technology and the most money, as kids do." And she goes, I didn't have a lot of that stuff, but you know what? I was the most happy out of the bunch. And I thought, wow, what a perspective for an 11-year-old to get. And she goes, my, my happiness isn't based in that. I thought that was pretty cool. You know? And because and she's seen how we live. We provided a template for living, and we do. We provide templates all the time, examples for our children that we are teaching them all the time on how to go about and conduct life. And how to go about certain things. We're teaching all the time, whether we realize it or not, because what we do is what they're going to do later. How we deal with situations, how we handle money, how we interact interpersonally. Our marriages are serving as an example that our kids are going to think that's what a marriage is to be like later. How we go about life, how we work, that is what our children will follow. Now, it doesn't mean they'll follow it perfectly. They might decide to rebel against it. But more often than not, they're going to go back to what they've been taught because there's a template, a path for them to follow. Now, you see, Jesus has given us a template on how to seek God, how to pray. He's left an example, something for us to to look at, to follow, to see how we can seek God. Remember, we talked last week that in the Old Testament, There's no one that teaches people how to pray. People weren't going to Moses saying, teach us how to pray. Now, there were great prayers in Scripture, but with Jesus, we see his disciples coming to him going, teach us how to pray. And Jesus begins like this, our Father. He starts off with this Lord's Prayer. Now, this Lord's Prayer that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks, we're going to be breaking down into different pieces and highlighting different parts of it at different times. And I'm going to be highlighting on two parts of it today. I'm going to focus on verse 11 and verse 13. And you're going to see later why we've kind of divided this up. It might seem a bit disjointed, but I promise you, you will see that it all flows together. And it's, give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
He's showing us how to, how to pray, how to seek God, and gives us this prayer. He lays it out for us. And if we learn how to pray this prayer, and I'm not talking about mindless repetition. I'm not talking about just reciting the words for word's sake. I'm talking about learning how to pray abundantly. Now, Martin Luther, I'm going to be, whom I, I will be referencing at different times throughout this message, was a great Protestant reformer. He helped reform and set the trajectory of the church. And he, he prayed. He was known for his prayer life. And get this, and I know this is over just unfathomable to most of us, but he prayed three hours a day. Three hours a day. And it took him years. He was a monk for many years before he broke away from that. So he was a man who was extremely disciplined. But in talking about what it means to pray, he, he, he would recite the Lord's Prayer. And he learned how to really pray this prayer. And he said that a man who learns to, a Christian, excuse me, has prayed abundantly, who has rightly prayed the Lord's Prayer. See, I think many of us like the idea of prayer. But the reality is, is we don't take advantage of it. It's like your cell phone. When you, when you have to get on an airplane and they tell you to, to turn it off or do what? Put it on airplane mode. Now, it's on airplane mode. You can use your phone, except you can't call out, receive calls, and you can't message people in airplane mode. It's interesting. You can do everything else. And I think that's how many of us look at the Christian life. I'll take everything else from you, God. I'll take all the blessings from you, but I'm not going to communicate with you. I'm not going to hear what you have to say, and neither am I going to talk to you. I'm really going to conduct my life apart from you. Thank you very much. I'm good as I am. Because we are afraid of what's going to be on the end of that call and what he's going to tell us to do and have us do. But I'm asking you to flip the airplane mode off. Let's open ourselves up and see what God has for us as we pray this Lord's Prayer and as we delve into it and pull it apart and see what God wants to show us. Because as we look at this message, I want us to keep a few things in mind and ask ourselves a few questions. The first is this. Whom do I trust? Whom do I trust? These questions aren't on the board. But who, who do I really trust? Do I pray? And if I were to look and assess my spiritual health by my prayer life, what grade would I give myself? What grade would I give myself? I want you to keep those questions in mind as we delve into this very important subject. And before we go any further, I want us to stop and pray, flip the mode, get ready to receive what God has for us. Let's pray. Father, Speak to us. Unplug our ears. Open up our hearts. Help us to see who you really are and what it is that you have for us because you long to communicate to your people. Lord, we need you. We need you to speak to us. Show us our sin. Do whatever you need to do to draw us into more intimate relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump into our text. As I mentioned before, we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 13. Now, when Jesus is saying, give us this day our daily bread, he's, he's looking to get perspective. And he's, he's talking about the bread, and he's uh, hearkening back to the picture of the Israelites in the Old Testament when they were in the wilderness, and they would be sustained by God for their daily provision, that God would send uh, bread, manna from heaven. And the understanding was is that the Israelites were to go out day after day and gather up what they needed. Now, God said, don't gather any more than you need except for that day. Don't keep any overnight, just for that day. Now, if they kept it overnight, which some did, it would get worms. It would rot. Because it was showing that they didn't have faith. They weren't trusting God. God's saying, I want you to trust me every day for what I have for you. I want, to, I want you to pray to me. I want you to seek my face. I want you to, to lay out your heart before me with your needs great and small. So what, what's the first point then? God wants us to be offering our petitions. The example of the Lord's Prayer is an encouragement for us to be offering our petitions before God, where we come before Him with our requests. 
when we offer our petitions, great and small. Sometimes we think, I'm only going to come to God with the big things because the little things are important in the sight of God. Let me tell you, your big things are God's, still God's little things. You think that this is really big to God, it's infinitesimally small. But yet, He cares. He cares. We see this within the book of Philippians chapter 4, where God lays out and He says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, great and small, every situation, come to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, presenting your request to God. That God longs for us to communicate with Him, to have that intimate relationship. Now, as we're getting ready to set the trajectory for the rest of the the message, I want us to to break down a few things before we even really dig any further into this text about prayer itself. Now, if we are to truly pray, which means have a conversation with God, we need to keep a few things in mind. First of all, God desires that we pray, and for us to offer these petitions effectively, then it requires us believing wholeheartedly. Write that down. Believing wholeheartedly wholeheartedly. You can't come to God without faith. You can't. It's impossible. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible. It is impossible to to please God. It is completely impossible. You can't just come to God and pray a prayer like it's a magic formula and expect God to answer when you really don't believe it. I'm amazed at how many people think that they can just con God and try to make a deal with God, like, God, I'll do this if you do this. It's like bartering with God. You just don't do that. I mean, why do we think we barter with God? You know, there was an experiment done when I was in college. I took a class in biculturalism. And one of the things that we had to do was take things from certain cultures and then try to do them in our own. And one guy dressed up, he's six foot seven, and he put on a kilt. And then he went to the, the mall on, um, uh, what's the mall downtown? The, uh, the tower, water tower place, okay? He walked into Gap and he had a pair of jeans. And he, and he had the guy come over and he goes, uh, I'll give you $10 for these. The guy's like, What? He said, these are $35. He goes, I'll give you 15 It's like it's barter. If you've ever been in a different culture, you barter. It's part of the culture. And the guy's looking around like, sir, these are $35. He says, I'll pay 20 and not a dollar more. <laughs> See, many of us try to do that with God. We think that God, that he doesn't have a fixed way of dealing with people. And that we can barter with him. And go back and forth. But God says, no, 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 it's fixed. This is how the communication is. It's not... It's not changing because of you that I've laid it out within my word, how I'm to communicate with people. But you have to come to me in faith, because without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earnestly seek him. Faith is so necessary for living the life that God once, as Jesus said in Matthew 21, 21 through 22, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you that if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, because the fig tree had died. He says, But even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, let me put a, a caveat on this, because I, I think that this is one of the most distorted and misunderstood verses within Scripture. Because I think people think that I can conjure up, and God becomes my great genie in the sky, or my great divine ATM, that I can lay out whatever I sinfully want, or just whatever I want, and God's going to give it to me. See, this is what the Word of Faith preachers do. These are false teachers because what they do is they make faith itself the object and a divine wish list where we act like puppet, uh, puppeteers and God becomes movement to what we ask. That's not what God is and that's not what, God, what faith is. See, faith is not so much an intellectual assent, nor is it a conjuring up of belief as much as a passionate pursuit 
with an expected outcome. It's a passionate pursuit with an expected outcome. It's a belief that motivates us to movement. That's what faith is. Faith itself is not the object. See, word of faith teachers try to make faith itself the object, not God as the object. God says, I am the object, not faith itself. God says, I want you to believe in me wholeheartedly, not having faith in faith. It's always a movement. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. The idea is that faith is moving to something. It is a passionate pursuit. But the question is, who is our faith in? Who is your faith in? Chances are, your faith is more in yourself than it is in God. We believe in ourselves more than we do God himself. But our faith as believers in Christ must be in God's Son. He is the one who made a way for us to have access to God. By his death on the cross, the veil was torn in the Jewish temple, indicating that man can now have access to God. We can have direct access, and that means we can now approach God. Offering our petitions then means not only believing wholeheartedly, but approaching boldly. As we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. We can be bold in our petition for God. The great devotional writer and pastor, A.W. Tozer of the Southside Alliance Church in Chicago, he uh, made a note in one of his books, The Attributes of God, on Martin Luther's prayer life. He says that contemporaries relate that hearing Martin Luther pray was an experience in theology. They said the reformer began praying with such humility that he could be pitied, only to proceed with such boldness before God that the human hearer would fear for him. He had such boldness before God. He approached God boldly. We now have access to God himself. Think about that for a moment. You have access to God. There's no one can prevent you from going to God. If you try to get access to the President of the United States and just try to walk into the White House, you're going to be detained. You will not get past a certain level. You can't just walk right in and then make a request to him. Walk right into the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, I would like this. Thank you very much. And then leave. You're not going to do that. You can't do that. You cannot get access to him. But God is saying, and his Oval Office is much bigger He says, come to me, you have access because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, now you can pray boldly and approach the throne of God boldly. Now, that's not all. Not just coming boldly, but when we get there, what do we do? We need to be asking specifically. Asking specifically. Now, this is where many of us get really messed up. Because we ask about our sinful desires... Or we ask wrongly to spend it on our own personal pleasures and we don't think about the purposes or praying the purposes and the promises of Almighty God. See, this is where John writes to us in 1 John 5, verse 14 through 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. His will, what is His will? Some Some of us in this room are saying, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? Does God want me to go here? Does God want me to wear this today? No, 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 no. God's will is anything he delights to have happen that will bring his name glory. Much of the the will of God is revealed in the word of God. It's God's will that you remain sexually pure. It is God's will that you be not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is God's will that you be holy. These are things about God's will that are revealed in his word, and we need to go to his word to seek his will. And if we ask in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us. And whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We must ask in accordance with the will of God. We need to understand also that he delights in giving us his good gifts. See, it's it's his desire that we draw closer to him. It's his desire that we glorify him in all things. Is it wrong to ask for a husband or a wife if you're single, or ask for a job, or ask for him to 
to purify you or to change your life. No, these aren't wrong things. These are good things. Depends on what your motive is, though, and ask him. What's your motive? Why do you want it? God does give good gifts, and he delights in giving good gifts to his children. But it all depends about the motivation that we have. We have to remember that when we do pray, God doesn't always answer at that exact moment. We're very impatient people. See, God's prayer request, when we make prayer requests to God, we have a tendency to put expiration dates on them. Just like we go to milk at the grocery store. One of the most annoying things is when you're in a hurry and you buy a gallon of milk and you see that it's expired. See, sometimes we, we go to God saying, hey, it has to be done tomorrow, God. How well do you at, like ask to be doing last-minute things? I mean, I think we, we, we misunderstand then the purposes of God. See, God, God desires to change us the more that we come to Him, that He begins to transform us. The more that we go into His presence, the more that we are, our perspective is changed. We're convicted of our sins. We're, we're told to pursue righteousness. We're further conformed to the image of God. But when we do come, we need to ask specifically. And then make sure that we are ready to wait patiently. Wait patiently and wait expectedly. I've been reading a great book by a man named uh, Bill Thrasher. And one of the things that he says is that you know your prayer life is dead when you're no longer expecting God to answer. You're just going through the motions. You don't have any faith anymore. Your faith is dead if you don't expect God to answer. I think for many of us in this room, we're more surprised when he does answer than when he doesn't. I'm reminded of Elijah, the great prophet. He knew how to wait on God. He prayed. He had a dynamic prayer life. He prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed that God would give rain. And he just didn't pray one time. He's on his knees, and he's, he's telling his uh, servant who's working with him to go look at the clouds, see the weather. Now, it's interesting. I want to show this passage to you in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 42 through 45. See, Elijah had just defeated the 450 prophets of Baal in one of the greatest spiritual cage matches of history. And the, the, the prophets of Baal got a royal beatdown. And then Elijah begins to pray. And he went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now. Look toward the sea. Meaning, what do you see out there? You see, you see rain coming? And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And I like this. Go again, he said. Seven times. Seven times. He persevered. See, many of us just one time, I prayed and then God didn't answer and I gave up. God wants us to persevere because what he's doing is he's drawing us closer to himself. He's asking, do you want it as much as I want it? And the more that you come closer to me, the more that you see my heart and what I want and what I want to do in you and through you. So you just want the product. You don't want the person. You want the present and not the Savior. And God is saying, come closer. I will answer you, but I'm going to give you myself, which is even greater than that. I'm going to expose your motives, and I'm going to begin to change you and work in you as I draw you closer to myself. But persevere. Hold on. That's why he says, go again seven times. And that's what the servant does. And at the seventh time, the servant comes back, and he says, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot. This Ahab, the wicked king. Prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. Because Elijah was saying, there's rain coming. There's a forecast that you need to get inside. There's rain coming. You need to be prepared for it. You know, there's an old story that I've shared before about the drought that was going on. And this preacher calls these farmers to pray. To pray because their whole livelihood was at stake. If it didn't rain, the crops would fail, and they didn't know what they would do. So they're gathered out in the field, and he starts saying, Do you have faith? They said, Yes, preacher, we have faith. Do you believe that God wants to make it rain? Yes, we believe that God wants to make it rain. Do you, do you think that he wants to bless you tremendously? Yes, we think he wants to bless us tremendously. And he goes, I have one question. Did you bring an umbrella? 
Were they really prepared? Were they really praying with faith and waiting expectedly? We have to wait expectedly. When you pray with not any expectancy, your faith has died. Prayer works. Bill Thrasher tells a story about a woman named Dorothy Clapp. She was an elderly housewife, lived in Virginia. God laid it on her heart to pray very specifically for the high school down the street. So she prayed. She prayed for these students. And she prayed, she prayed very specifically for these students to come to faith in Christ. And not only that, but that God would send them into the world for His glory. So she prayed. She took it very, very seriously. She prayed day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, she prayed. She prayed that God would save kids in the school. And not only that He would save them, but He would send them to the ends of the earth. And after 12 years of praying, she started praying for a mischievous male student. She sent him a Gospel of John. And three more years, she prayed, and finally God saved that young man. Now, before long, the student led 200 other students to Christ. 200. Three of them went to college and began to meet daily for prayer and go out evangelizing. They went on a mission trip to evangelize during their summer vacation. Three years later, they were taking Christ, Christian youth to Spain to share the gospel. Two years after that, they had their first multinational European campaign. And then three years after that, they went to India. Now, years later, they are still going out evangelizing on ships. The man's name is George Verwood. He is the president of an organization called Operation Mobilization. And he, he goes back, and he has reached thousands of people for the gospel. And he, he, if you read about the history of the organization, it has 1957 listed on their, the first date on their history of their site. He said, and it says very simply, one woman prayed. That's it. Nothing more. Do we pray? Do we wait? Do we go on day after day? month after month, year after year, decade after decade, asking God to intercede. See, we must wait on God to answer, and He does answer. He does care. He cares about all of our needs, both great and small. Now, let's get back to our text. We get a picture of God caring about our needs in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, it's interesting. Most um, of those in the uh, mid-ages had a hard time believing and understanding this verse. verse. It was too physical, like my real physical needs, too tangible, too, too something to our everyday experience. And they tried to spiritualize it and say, oh, the bread is referring to Jesus and, and that Jesus give us Jesus every day. And, and no, no, no. It's saying that God cares about our physical, tangible needs. He cares about your needs. He cares about you. He cares about what you are going through right now. He cares. He is intimately concerned about what you're dealing with and what you are struggling with. God cares. He cares greatly, much more than we do. And He invites us to care for, offer up our petitions day in and day out for our daily bread, our daily needs. And the point here is that we are to be seeking His provision for our lives and acknowledging that He is the provider. We have a tendency to be very self-sufficient, materialistic. And as soon as we become self-sufficient, we don't think we need God. I'm reading through the book of Hosea right now in my personal devotions, and I'm amazed at how the Israelites forgot God once they got wealthy. And they did so time and time again. They would continually embrace I mean, they would thank God, and then they would get all this stuff, and they would get comfortable. And when they get comfortable, then they got lazy, and then they would turn away from God. And God would send His prophets, calling them back to Himself, because they were delighting more in the gift than the giver. And then they would eventually turn away to false gods, which are no gods at all. And God rebukes them, and then He sends judgment their way. Judgment for those who turned away completely from the faith and chastisement for those whose hearts were still focused and ready to come back to Him. Looking to Him for, for our provision. Now we have to understand this. This is a very important part of this. Is that He provides for our necessities, not our luxuries. Our necessities, not our luxuries. Now, this is where the false teachers come in. And remember, Satan likes to masquerade as an angel of light. 
He was an angel himself, a fallen angel, but an angel. And then he likes to take things and make them look like Christ. He's an expert in this. And he likes to to make it look like Christ, to sound like Christ, to use the same words as a Christ follower. Or what um, he can quote the Bible. He knows the Bible very well, better than you or I do. I mean, he's got uh, multiple PhDs in Scripture. He is very well versed. And he knows how to twist it, to manipulate it, to get you to question it. And he, one of the things that he's done is that getting into these false teachers, these false teachers will go into places and they say, if you bring your money to the altar, God will guarantee to bless it and double it. And you see this going on in the African churches, by the way, especially in African independent churches, places where there's sickness abounds, where there's poverty everywhere, and they are going into these churches and they're saying, here, do this, do this, and they're just making money. These are people that are not caring about the gospel of God, But they're there to get fat off of others' faith, misdirected faith. So God guarantees to provide our necessities, not our luxuries. That's what he cares about doing. Now, some might say, well, then I'm going to pray. I need a job, and I'm going to pray. Well, that's good to pray. Now, have you filled out an application's? Okay? Some people say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pray. Okay, prayer is not an excuse or a denial of responsibility, but recognizes God's sovereignty. It's the next point. I want you to write down there. Bring that up. This does not deny our responsibility, but recognizes God's sovereignty. We are responsible in our actions and our choices. Yes, we are to pray. And there's times where we don't have anywhere else to go. And we should be praying all the time. Not just when we don't have anywhere else to go. We should be seeking His blessing at all times. But we also have to recognize that God wants us to work, to act, to do. See, that's why we evangelize. Well, we say, if God knows who's going to do it, then why do I have to do anything? Because he told you to. Yes, he's not only ordained the mean, the, the, the end result, but he's ordained the means at the same time. So we have to understand that this does not deny our responsibility, but to recognize God's sovereignty. And one of our responsibilities is to pray and work. It's interesting, in the book of Nehemiah, we get a picture of this. As they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they had two things in their hands. They had a sword and they had a trowel because enemies were coming in and out and they had to be ready to fight in a moment. So they're building and they're getting ready to fight at a moment's notice. That's the idea of the Christian life. There's sometimes we're, we're going to be building and there's going to be times that we're fighting where we're working and then we are, we are taking up the, the tools of the Spirit of God that are guaranteed to demolish strongholds as we read in Corinthians. So we have to understand this does not deny our responsibility, but it is a recognition of God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign over our lives. And by coming to Him and saying, give us this day our daily bread, you are the one that's in charge. You are the one who has given us the ability to have and make wealth. You are the one who has the cattle on a thousand hills. You are the one that brings the sun and the rain. You are the one that gives us health and has our life in the palm of His hand. It's recognizing His sovereignty. He is the one who provides for us. He is the one who protects us. Let's get back to our text in verse 13. We can see how He protects us. We ask, we're to pray in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, God wants us also to be looking to Him for protection. For protection. God wants us to be seeking His face for protection protection. We're to ask him to guide us and guard us how to live and how to keep us away from evil. Now, when he says, lead us not into temptation, he's referring to not being led to a place whereby we would sin against God. Sin is so serious and we have a tendency to just gloss over it, not make a big deal of it. It's a big deal. You know, I like it when people, it's funny to me when people wear those t-shirts and say, I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) Okay. I wish God had a t-shirt like that. Not just the, he is not kind of, he is the big deal. And he has shown his attitude towards sin on the cross. So how serious do you think sin is? It was serious enough for his son to die. It was that serious. 
for his son to give his life for us. God showed his judgment towards sin. We cannot continue in sin willingly, blatantly any longer. We must repent and turn to him. He showed his not only his attitude towards sin, but his love toward us. God doesn't want us to be led into temptation. We have to recognize that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we have to be reminded that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. See, we must make sure that we are on guard and not just looking to him for protection, but we are um, asking him to guard us from or protect us from the devil's designs. The devil has the playbook on your life. The devil is a very real creature. He's not found in horror movies like that. It's not how the devil works. I mean, there are times where he is very overt and it is just outright blatant. But most of the time, he is very... um, He wears a mask. He operates under the radar. And he likes to take us on a slow journey. He's been around a long time. He's playing a long game. It's not a short game with with the devil. It's a long game. What he doesn't realize is God's game's longer still. And Satan comes in the long game because it's a long con. He's trying to bring you down piece by piece, getting you to question the goodness of God, to getting you to think this is funny, to get this is acceptable. It's the whole frog in the kettle principle. That's what he's doing. He's turning the heat up on you gradually. See, if we were to see Satan in all of his fullness, it's like putting the frog in the boiling water. It just We jump out. But see, what Satan does is he turns up the temperature slowly. We see that going on culturally right now all over the place. I mean, if you were to go back and tell your parents or your grandparents of what's going on in our culture right now, they wouldn't believe it. Go back to our founding fathers and they would flip. They would not believe where we're at right now as a culture. Now, man, if you go back to maybe the early New Testament times, they might believe it a little bit more because evil was so rampant. See, they recognize more of the devil at work. We have a tendency to psychoanalyze it, to put psychology on it. There are psychological things. I'm not going to deny that. But the devil, see, he wants to get us to buy in, to to get us to question the goodness of God. And then what he does is he knows your weakness. See, we all have our own dent of disobedience, the original sin that shows up in our lives. We have our own proclivity to sin, and each of us shows up a different way. Yours could be lying, yours could be, you could be stealing, yours could be profanity, yours could be blasphemy, yours could be um, uh, homosexuality, or maybe it's pedophilia, whether it's, maybe it's adultery, yeah, it could be any of these things. It could be uh, alcohol, drug addiction, it could be food addiction, it could be any of these things. And Satan, what he does is he baits the hook of the world with the desire of your flesh, and he uses different bait for different people. For one person, he might say, oh, he looks the, baits the hook of the world, and he says, for them, it's gluttony. I'm going to keep putting food in front of them because they're going to look to food for comfort. I'm going to put some difficult situations in their life where they're not going to turn to God. If they turn to God, then ugh, that's going to stink, but chances are they won't because they keep giving in to food. Or alcohol to control all of the pain that's going on. And rather than deal with the reality of the pain going on in their lives, they turn to alcohol or drugs because they'd rather just forget See, that's what he does. He takes the hook of the world and baits it with the the desires of the flesh. We have to understand that he prowls around like a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, he not only seeks... I mean, not, it's not just the devil we have to be on guard against because we know that he uses our deadly desires. We have to be on guard against ourselves. Because we are master deceivers of ourselves. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. See, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God does not tempt you. He will not tempt you. He will test you, but not tempt you. He will test you in order to make you more finer, more of solid in his hand. He's not going to tempt you to do evil. He will not tempt you to do evil. It's against his nature. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted by their own, when he is lured and enticed by his own fallen desire, your own dent of disobedience and how it shows up in your life. And it seems natural to you. It seems natural to us. 
That's why we don't understand why one person can struggle with this and we don't. This is why one person struggles with alcoholism, one person struggles with homosexuality, one person struggles with pornography, another person struggles with lying, another with gossip. Well, we wonder why. Why do they struggle with that? I can't believe they would ever struggle with that. Well, look in the mirror, dummy. You got your own struggles and issues. We all do. I've got them. We have to recognize that, that we all struggle in many different ways. And then we all can be deceived by our own sinful desires. See, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So how then do we deal with our sinful desires? What do we do when temptation comes? We're asking God not to lead us into situations in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, it's interesting there. Before we uh, go on into lead your temptation, I want to talk about deliver us from evil. This lead us not to temptation is what we pray before we actually get into the temptation situation. Deliver us from evil is when we're in the midst of temptation itself, asking God for help. And we know that God provides a way out. He always does. But don't willingly disobey the word of God and say, I'm going to put myself into this situation because I know God's going to get me out. No, don't presume on that. That's foolishness. What we need to do then is pray, God, don't lead us into temptation, but if I find myself there, I know that you will give me that out that is there for me. Now, how do we respond when we find ourselves in temptation? Bill Thrasher, who's a professor at Moody Graduate School, wrote a great book called Victorious Christian Praying. And he, he shares a bit of a story, uh, a, a good thing to do if you find yourself tempted by sin. He says this, he, he gives an example. He says, a pastor on the West Coast was leading a number of people to Christ from some difficult backgrounds. He warned them that they would be tempted to go back to some of their previous immoral choices. With this spiritual danger in mind, he prepared, he prepared them with a very practical strategy of what to do. He instructed, I want you to think ahead and ask God to give a prayer burden to pray each time you're tempted to go back to your previous lifestyle. I want, you to be, I want it to be a prayer that will damage Satan's kingdom as God answers it. It's interesting. He says, the insight is not any... Uh, more complicated than he has stated it. It has been enormously helpful to me. This is Thrasher talking. And he says, and I have attempted to pass it on to hundreds of people. The idea is to use the temptation to do wrong as a motivation to pray. You can apply this to any persistent temptation in, in your own life. What if every time you are tempted to think an impure thought, you pray for the purity of your children? What if every time you are tempted to be discouraged or fearful, you prayed for God to fill your spiritual leaders with his spirit? It's a good thing to do. So if you find temptation coming at you, in whatever way, whatever it is, take that moment to pray. Pray for someone else. Say, I'm, I'm tempted uh, to view pornography. Lord, I, I'm not going to go there. I want to pray for my pastor. I want to pray for the teachers. I want to pray. And you just start praying. And God's going to start increasing that faith and giving you perspective and seeing how evil and dirty that really is. And you can turn away from it. And that could be for anything. And again, don't put yourself into situations of sin. That's why we say lead us not into temptation. Don't lead us into situations where we know that we're going to sin. Lord, please don't. Lead us away from those things. Because we lie to ourselves all the time. We're master liars at lying to ourselves. We have a tendency to say, I can handle it. It's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. And God's saying, no, no, no. It is a huge deal. Don't play around with sin and temptation. Make sure that you are asking God to lead you away, and when you find yourself in it, ask Him to deliver you from it, deliver you from evil. It's interesting, in some translations, it says, deliver us from the evil one. Because see, Satan's trying to lure you in with that. I mean, you know how Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men? Jesus is the great, greatest fisher of men. Satan's trying to masquerade and trying to be the same type of fisherman, trying to pull you in the hook of the world, the bait of the flesh. Don't believe it. Don't give in to it. Don't bite. Now, there are a couple of things and thoughts I would like to leave us with today. The first is this. This points to ponder. I asked you a question at the beginning. Who or what am I trusting in? What are you trusting in? Honestly, you trusting in yourself? Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you praying expectedly? Expectantly. What has crept up in your life that's caused you to doubt God, not to pray? 
Why aren't you praying? Because it's your trusting in yourself, not in God. Secondly, what template are you following when you pray? Do you have a way that you pray? Do you just, I mean, are you praying for anyone specifically? I'm not saying you go in with a full loaded list each time. I used to try to keep a, a loaded list. I, had a, I would write down every single prayer request, and I noticed that after a while I wasn't really praying for people. I was just writing lists. I need to be in conversation. And I'm not saying not pray for people and have people in our mind, but maybe rotate. Maybe say, I'm going to pray for uh, people, that I, people that need to be saved on Monday. I'm going to pray for people that are dealing with hard situations on Tuesday and maybe people that are dealing with sicknesses on Thursday. I don't know. I'm just throwing examples out for you. But pray. That's the point. Follow a template. And here it's saying, give us this day. Recognize God's provision for that day. Invite him to speak and fill you with his spirit to live the life that he desires. What template are you following? God has given us one. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your life name be hallowed in all aspects of my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. What template are you following? Luther used the Lord's Prayer as a template. It was a great place to start. The more that we focus on it, the more our prayer life is expanded. Lastly, if we don't pray, what happens? We become prey. If we don't pray, we become prey. We come, become susceptible for the devil in a greater way. We have no protection. No protection whatsoever. If we don't pray, we become prey. See, God desires that we pray. When we don't pray, we find that we're not getting any success in our Christian life. We're not having God speak to us. See, it's again, it's the airplane mode. When I flip it on, I can't get God speaking to me and drawing me closer to himself. I mean, have you wondered why your prayer life and your spiritual life is just slipping? Why you feel like you're in a rut? Are you praying? Are you reading his word? Are you seeking him passionately? Are you asking him to give you him a view of him, uh, giving you a view and picture of himself and what he wants to do in and through you? That's my prayer, is that God would speak in and through us to reach the world, to reach our community, to reach the world, that we might be passionate Christ followers. And we're all in different parts of life, and we have to recognize even there are some that are going to struggle with sin. There's some that are that don't even know who Jesus is yet and they're coming in and we need to be patient and bring them along. But the idea is, is that we all become white hot for God. That he might use us. But you can't be used if you haven't received him yet. If you haven't trusted in him. That if you haven't believed in what he did on the cross for your sins, that he died on the cross for you. It's about the cross. See, God shows his love for us, and he wants to communicate with us, but he's already communicated in the person of his son. He, his son gave his life for you, that you may not live to sin any longer, but you might die to sin and live to righteousness. That he took your sins upon himself. Upon himself. And that now... In and through belief in Him, for we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. God saves us and transforms us to be the people that He wants us to be. And it's a lifelong process. Is that image of God, though it was marred at the fall and distorted, He keeps knocking those dents out, if you would, and putting that divine image back into shape as the Son of God is as the Spirit of God is growing the Son of God in us, and we learn what it means to be followers of Him. See, this template He's given us is, us for, tr- is for trusting. Are you following that template? Or are you trying to create your own? Don't do it. Follow the template that He's given, and you will grow in faith and in joy. Let's pray. Father, the fact that we can call you Father. That right is only given to those who have become children of God 
have placed their faith in you. Lord, before we came to know you, we were outliers, enemies. We were against you. We were worshipers of Satan, of self, of sin, our own desires. Lord, you have shown the seriousness of sin by your death on the cross. And Lord, you also provided a way for us to have access to God and that now you are at the Father's right hand interceding for us, enabling us to believe wholeheartedly and come boldly to ask you, to ask requests of you is beyond our ability to fathom. Lord, we have not yet understood the true reality of what it means to pray, to seek your face. Lord, for those who are in sin, for those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray for them, that you grant them the repentance that leads to life. For those that are discouraged, I pray that you encourage them and help them to take that next baby step with you. And it might be a short prayer of, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. And Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you for some time, help us to grow in the depth of our relationship with you to truly understand this wonderful tool that we have at our disposal. Help us to turn the airplane mode off and seek your face and receive that which you have promised unto us. Lord, we want you to fill this place with your spirit and with your people. We want to see hearts and lives transformed as people are coming to the saving knowledge of who you are. Lord, please bless us. Use us. Do whatever you need to do to transform us and make us a place for people to come to the saving knowledge of you. And Lord, please, for those who are truly struggling, I pray that you uplift them and let them know that you are near and that you long to speak with them. It may not be long conversations, but Lord, let them, let them seek you, to call on you, to pray to you, to offer their petitions to you, because you long for that. Help, them, help us all to follow this template for trusting, for your glory and our joy. In the name that is above all names, we ask this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.